Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is where we're going to be this morning, so just open your Bibles there if you have them. Psalm 18. Well, I have found over the last you know, few years, 20 or so, that my dad is way smarter than I gave him credit for when I was a teenager. Does anybody else find that to be true? That your parents were not nearly as dumb as you thought they were back then. I used to find myself uh, arguing with him, but now I find myself saying a lot of the same things my dad used to say to me when I was a kid. I find myself saying those to my kids. Money doesn't grow on trees. Boy, do you think we own the electric company? One of my favorite ones. Someone has to go to work to afford the life that you've grown accustomed to. But then my absolute favorite. If I tell you a chicken can pull a freight train, hook him up. I used to argue with my dad quite a bit, especially as I got older. I'm sure you cannot imagine that. Uh, used to smart off to him, used to roll my eyes as I walked away, and I used to think to myself, what does he know? And then as time went on and I had my own kids, I've come to see a lot of the wisdom in the things that he told me back then. And I, I come to mind quite often. In our psalm this morning, David is celebrating the God who has saved him. And he's recognizing the wisdom of his works. So we're going to read this. It's 50 verses. And we're going to read every ounce of it. Okay? So it's going to, you know, take your breath. It's going it's to take a little while. So here it goes. Psalm 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said... I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From His temple, He heard my voice, and my cry to Him reached His ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. Foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because He was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. 
Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you, have, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me your, the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like mire of the streets, like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies, yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that as we talk about what it means, what we're to do with it, I pray you would be with us. Open our hearts that we may see and understand and believe and obey the word that you've put before us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. There are five sections, or we might say stanzas, 
to this psalm, not counting the main header at the very beginning, which is really the longest header we, we've had so far in the psalms. It tells us the most detail about what caused David to write this particular psalm. He's clearly celebrating the many victories that the Lord has, has given to him, not least of which victories over King Saul. Now, many think of this psalm as written early on in David's reign as king. It occurs also in 2 Samuel 22, which is very late in David's reign. Nearly a verse-by-verse duplication of this psalm occurs there as David writes it, which is very late in David's reign. But most people consider this written very early in his reign up until the point where he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband And then subsequently, his whole family fell apart and started rebelling against him. If you watch David's reign as king, it kind of starts up here, and then it it goes downhill in a hurry. And so as you read the psalm, it does kind of give the impression that a younger, perhaps slightly cocky young man (laughs) wrote this psalm rather than maybe a seasoned and humble king. Nevertheless, we have five stanzas here, but the first and the last stanza actually set the tone of the whole psalm for us. They give us an indication of what this entire psalm is going to be like. And in in verses 1 to 3, David calls out to the Lord his rock, his fortress, his deliverer. And there in verse 3, he says he is worthy to be praised. And then in the last stanza, which is the last five verses, starting in verse 46 all the way to verse 50, David restates most of that again. What you got in verses 1 to 3 are more or less repeated, at least in theme, in the very end. He says, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, salvation uh, he brings to his king. This psalm is a psalm of praise. David is is letting the praises be known to the Lord for all that the Lord has done for him. It's often really difficult in the Psalms, particularly the longer they get, to wrap your arms around the whole Psalm and kind of ask yourself the question, what is this whole Psalm about? How do I sum up this Psalm as a whole? And I've said a number of times, And you probably remember that the Psalms are intended to be sung. They're intended to be uh, worship liturgy. They're they're things that you can use in your churches that Jews would use in their synagogues. They're songs of worship. And they run the gamut of human emotion. You have a Psalm of praise like Psalm 18. But if you go back a few Psalms to Psalm 13, you see a Psalm of lament. We haven't even gotten to imprecatory Psalms yet where there's Psalms of cursing that are all meant to be there as a a psalter of praise for the congregation of the Lord. But it's often difficult, particularly in a psalm that's this long, to step back and say, what is David saying on the whole? What is the theme? What sort of bundles it all up together? Obviously, with this many verses, it's going to be really impossible to go verse by verse or even phrase by phrase, as is often the case around here. And so we're, but when you look stanza by stanza, you can see what generates David's overwhelming feeling of praise is the fact that the Lord saves. The Lord saves. 
That's, that's David's first point. The Lord saves. He has saved me. He has rescued me. That's what I want you to know. The Lord saves. That's what I want you to sing about in your churches. The Lord saves. He has saved me. So the first stanza, which is verses 4 to 19, or excuse me, the first body stanza, the second real stanza, verses 4 to 19, David is recounting the fact that the Lord has physically rescued him from the hands of his enemies. Remember the headline banner at the top is David celebrating this very occasion that the Lord has rescued him from all his enemies, not least of which Saul. You remember Saul. Saul was king. David is anointed king subsequent to Saul. And Saul brings him into his kingdom as a harp player, or Saul's men do. And then Saul gets really jealous of him and drives him out and seeks to kill him. And David spends most of his time with Saul on the run from Saul's, from the tip of Saul's spear. And he chased David hitherto and yon, but ultimately Saul is killed in battle and David becomes king. And so there are real physical enemies that the Lord has delivered David from, out of their hand, where he was hiding in caves, afraid that they were going to kill him, and the Lord actually rescued him. He says in verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me. And as is pretty typical of Hebrew poetry, if you go through the Psalms, you'll find this quite often. You'll see one line, and then the next line will just basically restate that line in other words. And so you have verse 4 and verse 5, which are basically a repetition of, of each other, where David is setting the scene of being brought to the brink of death by his enemies. And in verse 6 then, he cries out to the Lord, and he says, or he, he cries out to the Lord, and he says, from his temple, he heard my voice. And then we see that the Lord proceeded to answer him in verses 7 and following. And so the rest of that stanza is David giving this big poetic expression of how the Lord has reached down and saved him from being conquered by real and physical enemies. Shortly after gaining the throne from Saul, David begins a military campaign, crusade of sorts where he begins conquering various other enemies. Enemies that were a threat to Israel all the way back to the time of Moses. The Lord is giving him victory after victory. Enemies that should have been driven out of the promised land from the get-go, David is now moving in and driving out. And all of this you can read about in starting really in 2 Samuel all the way up from 2 Samuel 1, all the way up to about chapter 11, right before he has an affair with Bathsheba. The Lord is just giving him victory after victory in battle. And the Lord is continually saving David from any enemy that would rise up and challenge him. And the writer of 2 Samuel is very clear in 2 Samuel 8, verse 14. He says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David is praising the Lord because, why? Because the Lord saves. Very simply, he has, he could have killed me anytime he wanted, but he didn't. He saved me. Now, what made the Lord decide to save David? 
Other than he was king, he's killed kings before in the past. What, What made the Lord decide to save David? Well, David gives us a partial answer in verse 19 at the close of this stanza. He says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. That's it. That's what he says. Because he delighted in me. Well, that doesn't seem like a reason. Because he chose to. Because the fact that God chose to delight in him is the reason that God saved him. But then David tells us that the Lord doesn't just save everyone. He saves the righteous. The Lord saves the righteous. Now, this psalm and that statement should probably trigger some things in our brain a little bit. What do you mean saves the righteous? The Lord only saves the righteous? That sort of makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And when David says some of the things that he says in this stanza, in this coming up stanza in verses 20 to 30, it should make us a little bit uneasy. Certainly uneasy to say that about ourselves. Some of the things that he brings up. The New Testament Christian might go, now wait a minute, David. He opens the second stanza, which I said, as I said, goes from verse 20 to verse 30. He opens with, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Verse 21, For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Verse 23, can you imagine saying this? I was blameless before him. This leads David to the conclusion in verse 24. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Verse 27, For you save a humble people, but the haughty, Eyes you bring down. The implication here, made explicitly clear in the rest of the Bible, is that God does not save everyone. He saves the humble. In fact, David says that. That's the ones who you save. He saves the righteous. In fact, he says in verse 26, with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. This stanza here has led many commentators to conclude, obviously, like I said before, that David must have written this before he had an affair with Bathsheba because after that, surely he was much more humble of an individual and he realized just what he had claimed here in the beginning. And we see, sure enough, at the beginning of David's life, there is a pattern of faithfulness, whereas after Bathsheba, it sort of kind of takes a dive Surely he wouldn't have written this at the end of his life because David knew by the end he wasn't exactly the picture of purity. But even at the beginning of David's reign, even at the very beginning, he knew himself to be less than blameless. In fact, that's what part of what made David the kind of man we see in Scripture, that he was quick to repent, that his heart was soft and had not grown hard toward the Lord. He knew himself to be less than blameless and credited all his good that was happening to him with the providence from the hand of God. Whether it was God saving him from committing a sin like he was about to do with Nabal, if you'll remember that, as he was going to kill Nabal and Nabal's wife stepped in and he understood Nabal's wife as intercepting him as being directly from the hand of God, saving him from committing sin. 
Or when he had cut off the robe of Saul, when he had him there in the cave, his heart was pricked and he was convicted even about that. Regardless of when he wrote this, it should probably give us pause. Because what, is it, what exactly is David celebrating here? That only perfectly righteous, that only the blameless, that only the pure, that only the humble receive salvation from the Lord. Well, what he's celebrating is that the Lord judges according to his righteous standard. He judges according to the Lord's own standard of righteousness, not by the worldly standards of justice. In verse 27, the haughty, for example, are brought down really low. The merciful, the blameless, the pure, in verses 25 and 26, he rewards. That kind of sounds like the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, if you'll remember. So in all of life circumstances, the Lord is measuring according to his perfect measuring stick. And he measures all people according to his perfect measuring stick, to his standard of righteousness. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're powerful or weak. In judgment, God is going to measure you by an absolutely perfect measuring stick. Now, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? We'll start with the good news. How else would you want it? How else would you want it? Do you want a judge that can be bought? No. Do you want a judge that could be persuaded by emotion or power? Do you want a judge that could be influenced perhaps by things that you have or what you might provide for them? Do you know that nearly every single judge in this world has a price? Every man in this world has a price. Nearly every single one of them can be bought. What do you hear from people crying out on the streets this very day for justice. Now, America's justice system is the greatest justice system that the world has ever known. And we know the value of the words innocent until proven guilty, which is a historical anomaly, a current anomaly, that you would be presumed innocent and someone who would have to prove you guilty. And yet, as great as that standard of justice really is, we know that it's not perfectly followed. So it's good news that there, are, there is a judge who judges our eternal state and everything about us in accordance with his perfect standard of justice. And the boastful, the proud shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. From Psalm 5 5. That's good news. The crooked will be tortured. That's good news. Justice will be had. Now for the bad news all of us fail. There it is. 
That's spectacularly bad news, by the way. I hope you feel that. That's, that's really tragic and terrible news. I was in a park uh, some years ago, and we were sharing the gospel with college students. The, the school was right across the street, and then for their breaks, they would come over to the park, and they would just relax there, talk with their friends, maybe read books or study or whatever. And so we were going to use that opportunity to distract them. And so we <laughs> systematically worked our way through the people in the park, and we just kind of started with one and just worked our way all the way across the park. And we would go up to them and just ask them if we could talk to them about spiritual matters. Could we talk to you about uh, whether God exists and things that are more or less deep, kind of like this? And when I asked them if there was, if they thought that there was a God who judges and that there was perhaps life after death, most of them said yes. Most of them said, yeah, I don't know what it's like exactly, but I think in some kind of way, uh, there's going to be some sort of life after death and you will be judged and there'll be some sort of God who will do that kind of thing. And then when I asked them if there is a God and maybe such a thing as like an eternal life and somewhere where you go when you die, how do you think you get there? On what standard would God judge you? 100% of them said that essentially God measures the good things that you've done in life, balances them against the bad things that you've done in life, and if the good things outweigh the bad things, then you're in. Now, 99% of the people that you will run into will tell you that exact same thing. And many of them will go to church every single Sunday. But people that you meet that believe that life exists after death, that there is some sort of judgment, most of them will tell you that exact same answer. Some of them will profess to be Christians. The problem is that God doesn't measure righteousness on a scale from 1 to 10. How good were you? It's binary. You are either righteous or you are not and he measures your righteousness against himself. That's the standard. Are you perfect? Is he perfect? Well, no. Then you're not righteous. That is righteousness. Anything short of that is not righteousness. And David is quick to tell us in verse 30, this God, his way is perfect. Anything short of his level of perfection is unrighteous. And you might say, well, that's not fair. I mean, he can't expect me to be like him. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I've done some good things. I'm not Hitler. Now, wait just a minute. That sounds like you want him to make an exception for you. You want him to bend the standard of justice. What makes you any different from those ones who would buy off the judge? Change the standard so that you're included. But you know what? Guys like Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, they're all out. In fact, when we ask them that follow-up question, if there is a hell, how do you get there? Well, and who is there? Well, yeah, obviously, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini. Guys like that. 
Regardless of what the Bible actually says and what Jesus actually says, that you too are a murderer because you've hated your brother in your heart. You're an adulterer because you have lusted after other people. In spite of all that, no, 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 bend the rules around me so that I'm included, but guys like Hitler, they're out. God is not an earthly judge that he can be bought by your good deeds. Jesus makes this abundantly clear what qualifies in Matthew 5.48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There are no exceptions. The Lord saves only the righteous. But you might be thinking, well, then if the Lord saves only the righteous, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and He is the measure of perfection, how does He save anyone? Isn't this just another way of saying the Lord saves no one? Which brings us to the third stanza. From verses 31 to 45, David lays out that the Lord saves the righteous by providing righteousness. The Lord saves the righteous by providing their righteousness. He says, for who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The God who, listen, equipped me with strength, listen, and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. Verse 39, for you equipped me with strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me I destroyed. The principal actor in David's salvation and David's righteousness in his military victories in anything good that has ever come about by his life is the Lord You must filter everything you read in this psalm through stanza number four, which is this one. Everything's filtered through that. David says in the middle of the stanza, he talks about being saved according to his righteousness in the, the previous stanza. But David clearly states that it's the Lord that made his way blameless. So David is understanding that any blamelessness or righteousness that would make him worthy of being saved by the Lord will not and has not actually come from him. It hasn't been generated by his own heart. He had not the righteousness to provide for himself. It came from God. I said that at the beginning of this psalm, it's a psalm of praise. And this is precisely the reason David is praising the Lord. 
the Lord's deliverance of David, his dealing justly with humanity and his provision of righteousness so that David could make it is praiseworthy. If David saved himself by his own wit or by his own merits, David would be singing a psalm to himself. Now this is the part that makes the psalms really difficult. So I want you to think really hard with me for just a second. I've personally found the psalms to be both a comfort when I read and when I study and also very challenging to understand for one main reason. Each and every psalm has no less than three layers of meaning to it. There is first the contextual meaning. The contextual meaning. And that that meaning is what it meant to David in his own context, in his immediate context. What does this mean to David? Why is David saying this? What practical circumstances is he in which produces? That's the contextual meaning. Then there is the, big word coming, Christological meaning. Christ-o-logical. Christological meaning. What it means now that Christ has come. So for us New Testament Christians, how do we understand this in light of Jesus? David is describing a room that we're all walking into in his psalm, but the lights are off. Jesus comes in and turns on the lights, and now we can see the furniture and what it all looks like. So there's the Christological meaning we've got to make sense of. And finally, there's the meaning of comfort to the reader or the worshiper that's reading this. You and I, how does this actually apply? What do we actually do with this? And they need to be thought through in that order in the Psalms, and it makes them particularly difficult. So let's go through each one of those. So for the contextual meaning, David is literally saved from the hands of physical enemies by God. And David is looking at the victories that he has on the battlefield, and he's seeing that the Lord has been the one that has done all of this work in driving out the enemies before him. The Lord has made David righteous so that he might continue to be on David's side and continue to drive out his enemies before him. He's seen that the Lord is righteous, that he judges righteously because all of these other kingdoms that worship false gods, they are falling down left and right at the end of his sword. And he's also recognizing that God has situated David as king over his kingdom. God is establishing the kingdom of God and David is sitting at the tip of his spear. So David is a tool in the instrument of God, in the hand of God, as an instrument used to establish the kingdom of God. David is the very tip of the spear. David realizes that he doesn't bring anything to the table, but rather that God has fitted him for this position. It was strictly by grace. But then there's the Christological meaning. Now that Christ has come, how do we think about this? It takes this psalm even further. We spent a great deal of time talking about God establishing the kingdom on earth. We've done that throughout the psalms. We do that on Wednesday night in 2 Samuel. We've done that uh, many times in Matthew about God establishing his kingdom on earth. Initially began with Adam. He was charged with exercising dominion in the image of God around the earth. 
yet he fell into sin. The children of Israel were gathered together by God, created as a people, and they were brought to be the kingdom of God, to establish the promised land, to establish a temple, to bring the nation streaming to the temple. And what do we see in the Old Testament? But they continued to sin. Why are the enemies that David is driving out even there in the land in the first place? Because we see at the end of the book of Joshua and the beginning of the book of Judges, they did not drive out the enemies that they were supposed to. The children of Israel failed to drive them out as the Lord had commanded. And before the kingdom of God really even began, it had already started to fail. David, we have seen again, particularly on Wednesday night, he couldn't even establish the kingdom of God perfectly. Yet, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 came this promise to David that someone from his line would establish the kingdom of God and his kingdom would endure forever. And this king would be of David's line. So it's about Jesus that Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is from the seed of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. And he shall kill the wicked. That sounds similar to the psalm we're reading. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see what Isaiah is saying about him. The Spirit of the Lord will indwell him in such a way that he will be perfectly righteous. God in the flesh come down to live a perfect life. And he will judge righteously. So Jesus, Christologically now we're thinking, Jesus can in every way sing Psalm 18 and it be about him. Every line he can sing about himself. This is exactly true of him. The cords of death did encompass Jesus. The the cords of Sheol entangled him as he hung there on the cross and as he went into the grave for three days. He would cry in distress to the Lord for call for help to his God. And then in verse 7, how does the Father answer but that the earth reels and rocks and the earth quakes at the death of Jesus? And ultimately, on the third day, the Father would vindicate the Son in the eyes of the watching world. He would be raised. Why was he raised? Because he wasn't guilty. That's why. Because he was 
perfectly righteous. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is so fundamentally important, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Not only because it tells us about our future, but because it tells us that there was no guilt in him, that the grave could not hold him. And so he rose bodily. God dealt with Jesus according to his righteousness. Jesus could sing that about himself. He was actually righteous. The grave, which is God's judgment on sin, has no claim on this righteous man. But brothers and sisters, and anyone else that might be considering Christ even for the first time, this is our message of of comfort. The righteousness that God requires, you don't have, and you never will. I don't have, and I never will. The only reason you and I could stand before God on judgment day not guilty is with the righteousness of another imputed to us. The righteousness of another given to us. So on the cross, Jesus faces the punishment that you and I deserved, and he paid the debt that we could never pay, not within eternity in hell. And he transferred then to us, by faith, into our account, his righteousness. And so that righteousness then is offered to us by faith in his atoning sacrifice, by faith in Jesus' atoning work. What do we become? We become his offspring. And the last verse of this psalm says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed Jesus, to David and his offspring forever. So then you and I can sing this psalm. Why? Because the righteousness that I have, that God is judging me by, is not my righteousness. It's not born from my own heart. It's Christ's righteousness given to me. So I can simultaneously say with David that the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hand. He has rewarded me because if I am a follower of Christ, his righteousness is my righteousness. The money from his account has been transferred to mine. It is mine to spend. But then I can also say with David, who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength, strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the deer and set me secure on the heights. I can sing that with all my heart. He's the one that gave that to me. In Christ and only in Christ because your hope of eternity has been provided by God in and only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christian, this is why we come to church on Sunday morning. Have you come here, perhaps with a heavy heart? Maybe it's frustration of a sin in your own life. Maybe you've come to realize 
situation that we're all in is frustrating in ways that are just that are even hard to explain how frustrating it is it's frustrating maybe you're coming to grips with just how feeble you are faults in your past that you cannot seem to let go of frustrations about where your future is headed you're one virus away from death it turns out. Perhaps you're growing more and more worried about the trends that you see in the world around you. There's a heaviness that's on your heart that's difficult to put into words, but it's there. There's no telling what we will go through in the coming years. And all throughout our lives, we will probably wonder God, what are you doing? For what it's worth, I, I don't think this is the best way. It's just, this doesn't seem great to me. But you can look to Christ on the cross, surrounded by his enemies, suffering untold miseries at the hands of men, and you can look to him rising again on the third day. And I think we can all say with David, this God, his way is perfect. You can look back and see the wisdom in what God has done. What the wise of the world call foolishness. And what we can look at and say, was the only way he could save his people from their sins. How amazing is that? The word of the Lord proves true and that he is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Gratitude doesn't even seem to be enough to express what we are. We only stand here because of what you have done. We have nothing to cling to in and of ourselves. It's only Christ. How can we be anything but immensely grateful for the work you have done in and through him. You have saved your people from their sins. Father, I pray that as people might be hearing the gospel, maybe for the first time, I don't know, you call them to yourself. Would you open their heart that they might hear? Would you give them a conviction and a hatred for their sin? It's difficult for them to quantify. Would you radically transform their life 
right now? Would you open their eyes to see the miracle of the resurrection? To see its truth and validity? To see the wisdom in Christ on the cross? And come running to you for salvation. Would you please do that? In Jesus' name, amen.